Greetings, I'm Jessica Schmidt, Director of Investment Communications here at Diamond Hill, and this is Understanding Edge. Today, I'm joined on the podcast by Douglas Gimple, Senior Portfolio Specialist for our Fixed Income Team here at Diamond Hill. 2022 is coming to a close, and it's certainly been a challenging one for fixed income investors. I've asked Doug to join me for a final podcast this year for an update on the latest Fed meeting, for him to share some insights about the potential benefits of investing in securitized debt, as well as to share a few comments to frame the upcoming year for fixed income investors. As always, stay safe, stay healthy this holiday season, and I hope you enjoy my conversation with Douglas Gimple. Hey, Doug, welcome back to the podcast. It's Hi, fantastic uh, to have you back for one final recording this year. Uh, yes, thank you for having me back. I enjoy it as always. And uh, I like talking about fixed income, which most people most people find boring. So uh, I always enjoy getting on and talking. So let's let's get it done. Fantastic. Well, today we're going to do a brief recap of the Fed's latest meeting. We're also going to dive into this real life example that you pulled together in your monthly commentary that helped illustrate the potential risk reward benefits of securitized debt. And then we'll wrap up with a couple of forward-looking comments about fixed income markets as we prepare to head into the new year. So let's start with what the Fed did yesterday on December 14th. It was widely expected that they would raise rates by 50 basis points, and they did just that. And of course, leading into that, we had the latest inflation number, which also came out earlier this week, down to 7.1% from 7.7% at the previous reading. But what other takeaways, aside from the very widely expected 50 basis point increase, do we have from this latest meeting? Yeah, this meeting, you know, really were no surprises from the the initial uh, information that were given. So the 50 basis points everyone expected um, on the heels of really the day before the meeting, uh, CPI came out, and as you mentioned, was lower, but still still pretty hot. Um, but I think what was most interesting and what we took out of the meeting outside of what everyone expected, the statements, if you put uh, the previous statement and then this statement side by side, there really was was little or no change. Um, so it was very straightforward. What was interesting uh, was the statement of economic projections, uh, the dot plot, uh, which is is quite different. Um, you know, the prior meeting where we had a dot plot, and again, the dot plot is basically, um, projecting what the Fed members think rates will be uh, at the end of this year, at the end of next year, 2024, 2025, and then there's a longer term. Uh, but what was most interesting was you know, the median level for September, which was the last time the dots were released, they're done on a quarterly basis. The median, lo- the median level was 4.625%. Uh, there were only two members uh, in the September meeting that had anything of a terminal rate above 5%. Uh, we look at it yesterday on December 14th's uh, release of the dot plot. It's completely different. Uh, the terminal rate or the end rate by the end of 2023, their projection is now 5.125. So a significant move higher. Um, 17 of the 19 voting members uh, actually had uh, the terminal rate or the, the rate at the end of, again, 2023, above 5%. So almost the exact reversal of what we saw in the previous quarter. And seven uh, members had rates, the terminal rate above 5.375%. So a significant move higher. So even though you could 
you know, theoretically look at going from 75 basis points in November to 50 basis points as potentially relatively dovish uh, because they were slowing the rate. If you look at everything else, it was very hawkish. And you, you listen to Powell's press conference and you look at their economic projections, uh, GDP for 2023, they project that it will be 0.5%. So teetering on the edge of contraction. Uh, they show unemployment going up by one full percent. Uh, so, you know, just looking at that, you think, well, is the Fed expecting a recession? Are they projecting, are they forecasting a recession? Uh, and someone uh, asked him that in the press conference. And his comment was, no, we are, we are not in the business of, or we are, or we are not in the process of uh, projecting or predicting a recession. This is just what we think things are going to look at. So there, it sounds like they're hoping for a soft landing. Um, but the biggest part is the market reaction. Uh, we're seeing a lot of it today. So Thursday, December 15th, the equity markets are down considerably. The fixed income markets are kind of steady. Um, but what we, what we haven't seen uh, is an adjustment to the market's expectations for terminal rate. So if you look at Fed futures, and you look at you know December of 2023 and what those markets are telling us, they're telling us that the Fed is going to peak at 5% and then actually cut rates going into the end of next year. Even after the press conference, the dot plot, after all of the information given by the Fed outside of their, their uh, statement, the market is still saying, you know what? We still think you're going to lower rates by the end of next year, which goes against everything that that Powell and other chair members are saying. So there's this disconnect between what the market's expecting and you know what the Fed is saying is going to happen. But I think, you know, to to, to bottle all this up, I think you know going into the next couple of meetings, uh, we're going to be very we're going to hear data dependent quite a bit. Um, they're going to want that flexibility back, uh, but the Fed right now, after yesterday's move they're basically pricing in or they're expecting another 75 basis points. So whether that's 50 at the next meeting in February and then 25, or it's three consecutive 25 basis point increases or it's spread out over the year, they're in a mode of we're still tightening and the market continues to expect or hope for some kind of pivot. And the Fed is basically saying in their press conference and in, and in other comments, no, you're not gonna get that. We're gonna keep going. And he's even reiterated that it's much more painful if we stop too soon than if we go too far. And so I think that's where we're at right now. And there's some of that disconnect between, you know, what the Fed is saying and what they're showing with the dot plot and what the markets are kind of forecasting. Interesting, Doug. Sounds like we have um, some interesting times ahead mm -hmm. coming up in the next few months. But uh, yeah, without a doubt. The other thing we've talked about in the past, Doug, um, there's the interest rate side of things, which is most talked about among the pundits and um, commented on by the media. But the other side of quantitative tightening is the Fed's balance sheet. And we've talked about that before. Can you give us um, just a status update on the progress that we're seeing there? Yeah. So if we had been doing this this call tomorrow, actually, or this recording tomorrow, um, you know, we'd have a little bit more information, but I, I don't think it's going to change all that much. And the reason I'm saying that is because every week, um, the FOMC releases their holdings. And so you can go to the New York Fed website. You can actually download it week over week. Um, it's released, um, I think it's done on Wednesday, but it's actually released to the public on Thursday. So Thursday evening at about 4.30, you can actually go out to the website, 
and you can look at what the balance sheet looks like. And that's something I've been doing really since June, um, being the nerd that I am, is, is looking at it every week to see how things have changed. And from really June, when they started quantitative tightening, which was allowing securities to roll off on a, on a monthly basis, um, we've reduced the balance sheet by about $318 billion, which is a big number. Um, but when you consider we've gone from 8.4 billion to 8.1, not huge, but we've, we've crested, you know, we're on the downside of reducing the balance sheet and we're headed that way at least. Uh, the majority of that has been in treasuries, as you would expect, that's what they were focused on. And there's some technical issue within the mortgage market and how long it takes to settle trades. And so that's on a little bit of a lag, but you know, the balance sheet is down by about 4%. And it's doing exactly what they said they were going to do. And it's almost as if it's going on in the background. And I know they got into trouble and I think it was 2018 when they were talking about it being in the background and just on autopilot. And um, they're not even really talking about it. I mean, they, he mentioned it in some of his comments that they're going to continue doing what they're doing. They're going to maintain the pace at which they're at. He did not talk about selling. Um, and so we'll continue to see that into 2023. Uh, and there's really no indication that they're going to slow down at any point or accelerate. So it just kind of keeps happening. And it's something that we keep, you know, we keep tabs on, but it's progressing as you would expect. So, you know, that's another component of what they're doing within the economy is, you know, the average person on main street is not going to see anything to do with that as opposed to, you know, fed funds rate. Uh, but it is, you know, it is impacting the markets ever so slightly, but it is something that's going on and that will continue um, and has been continuing really without a hitch since they started in, in June. Okay, well, that sounds good. Um, let's shift gears now, Doug, into this, um, I'll call it a case study on securitized debt. Um, as I mentioned in my opening, you wrote in your monthly commentary or examined in your monthly commentary, a real life company. Um, and it was a really interesting look at how a company, number one, taps capital markets, be it equity, debt, or securitized debt, but it also really helped illustrate how securitized debt is, for the most part, very separate and very distinct from the issuing company's equity or debt. Um, and I know this is particularly important to the fixed income team here at Diamond Hill, given that both strategies that the team manages invest heavily in securitized debt. So. I'll have you first set the stage by telling us a little bit about this company, which we'll call Company A. We're not going to use their real name, mostly because um, you know this isn't necessarily an endorsement or a criticism of the company, but rather a, a great example of how securitized debt can be insulated from potential difficulties that a parent or issuing company might be having. And I, I should say in full disclosure, the fixed income team here at Diamond Hill has not invested in the securitized or corporate debt of this particular company as an example. Um, so with that, let uh, start out by telling us just a little bit about this company and how it has tapped capital markets. Yeah. So, you know, one of the things that I thought about when putting this together is, is I thought maybe if we go back to, to 2005 and we look at Ford. Uh, Ford and GM both, I think it was in May of 05, were both downgraded below investment grade, which at the time was was huge. Um, and their, you know, the equity price on Ford was down 50%. And then you saw what happened with the bonds and, and the securitized. But uh, I thought it was more important and more applicable to take something um, more contemporary. Uh, and so, you know, we look at Company A, and uh, Company A is um, an online used car uh, sales site. 
where you can buy or sell used cars. Uh, and if you look at you know their history, they've done phenomenally well. So going into or coming into the pandemic, so we'll we'll call it the the beginning of 2020, uh, they were in a really good position. They were doing fairly well, and then once the pandemic hit, they took off uh, because if you recall, in in you know the year year and a half, the first year and a year and a half of of the pandemic. Supply chain shut down, you couldn't get a new car. So you had to focus if you needed a vehicle, you were going to get a used car. So used car pricing took off, improved their margins dramatically. They were kind of the only you know show in town for a short while, and then others came in. But it was kind of this darling of the pandemic market where it did really, really well. And you know, the stock I think started 2020 in like the 90 range, uh, got as high as 370, 380, so really took off. Um, but subsequently, as we came out of lockdown, as we stabilized, or I don't want to say normalized because we're not there yet, the supply chain, new cars started rolling onto the lots. Um, the interest in used cars dropped precipitously. And with that came, you know, the drop in pricing. And so margins got squeezed. And so this company, you know, went from, you know, king of the world to, if you look at their performance from, the beginning of 2020 to the end of November of this year, their equity is down, you know, 92%. So they are, you know, plunging to the depths uh, over that same time period, even given what's happened this year in the equity markets over that same time period from, again, the beginning of 2020 to the end of November of 2022, the S&P 500 is up 32%. So a huge difference in, you know, what's happened with this company. And it's because, you know, the world changed much to their benefit, but then it very quickly reversed uh, much to their detriment. So on the equity side, you've got headline risk. There's an article, you know, every other week in the journal, in the Financial Times. And, and so you see this and, you know, it hits, it hits the equity. Uh, and then you look at the debt. And the other side of the equation is is the debt market, again, treated it very similarly. It was a darling. It was going to, you know, there was no concern about the viability of the company. Well, now they're junk rated. Um, they went from, you know, the, 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 the moment uh, where everything really changed was their last earnings report, which I think was in early November, uh, and basically said, hey, you know, we're, we're losing money. We've laid people off back in May. We're laying off more people. And so as this continued to happen, the, the question about whether they can pay their debt back really starts to creep up. And so their, you know, their debt pricing went from, you know, anywhere in the 90s uh, to close to par at the beginning of, of 2020 to now. They're in a range, you know, anywhere from 35 to 50 cents on the dollar. So really in kind of distressed levels. And when you look at the performance of that debt, and I'm talking across the maturity spectrum. There's not a lot of issuance out there, but you know the the high yield market, which is essentially what they would be a part of, is down about 10% uh, through November of this year. Their bonds are down anywhere from I think it's 41 to 51%, depending on maturity. So huge impact not only in equity where you're not protected as an investor, but even in fixed income where you do have a claim on assets, but it continues to drop. And the last part that I would mention between equity and fixed. You really see the stress on the company when you look at they did an issuance in uh, early uh, April of or mid April of this year of 2022, 
um, they had to pay. So the coupon they had to pay was about 10 and a quarter percent. So double digits, they have to pay, you know, to borrow that money. If you look at 2021, 2020, you know, they were paying in the anywhere from five to 6% range. So their cost of capital by issuing debt is more than doubled. Uh, their issuance has also ramped up considerably. They did more in 2022 than they had done in the previous year, previous two years, actually. So more levered, equity struggling. And so you get this headline risk that keeps popping up that's you know feeding on the whole issue where it's just compounding and, and, and causing more and more problems. So uh, that, you know, from that standpoint, you know, when I look at the company, it's, it raises a bunch of red flags. Now I'm not an equity analyst. I, I don't pretend to be one. We have them here, obviously. Um, but just looking at the performance and, and then looking at the debt, you can see there's a lot of concerns there. And so, you know, that's something that we think about, but when we look at securitized and, and we'll talk about that in a little bit, it's, it's very different. And, and though you've got the name, um, it is very, very different. So it's pretty safe to say, Doug, based on some of the numbers you were, you were quoting that if you were, if you were an investor in either the stock of company day, a, or some of the corporate bonds of company, a, it has not been, been, uh, an enjoyable ride to say the very least. That's that's exactly right. You know, it all it all depends on when you buy in. Um, like you could buy into the debt right now, with the hope that there's some kind of workaround or they 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 kind of settle things. Um, but yeah, if you bought the equity, you've just kind of, you know, you got the euphoria of going through the roof and then the you know the disaster that followed. So uh, yeah, it's it's been rough, you know, across the board whether it's fixed income or equity relative to. Uh, you know, peers relative to index, it's it's been a really rough ride. So now if we think about the securitized side of that, um, help us understand the nature of the securitized deal that this company has issued and how investors in those deals have fared in comparison to the stock and the corporate bonds. Yeah, so I looked at, um, again, I'll call it company A 2019-4. So mm -hmm. it was a, a securitized deal that they put together uh, again, back in 2019. Uh, so it was, I think it was their fourth issuance in 2019, thus the dash four. Um, and it was a deal that was about 520 million in, uh, in issuance. Uh, it was about 28,000, a little bit more than 28,000 auto loans. So they pool the auto loans that are on their books and securitize that through a bankruptcy remote entity or trust, and then sell that into the marketplace. And so that's key, that bankrupt, bankruptcy remote aspect of it. So again, whatever happens with company A is not going to issue, is not going to impact these securitized uh, assets. And so um, when that is done, you know, you get those, you're essentially, you're selling those assets off of your books. You're getting that money immediately uh, that is owed on, on those car loans, whatever it may be. And so when you securitize that out, you break that out into what we call tranches. So you've got essentially in this case, I think it was A through E uh, and the A class is split into fixed and floating. And then you've got B, C, D and E and um, some residual, but you've got uh, as an investor, if you're buying into the securitized um, market and specifically company A, you're looking at things like over collateralization. So how much in loans is out there versus how much is securitized. So how much extra do I have sitting on my books to, to cover losses? 
you've got excess spread. In the case of, of this deal, the excess spread or what you're uh, bringing in in excess of what you have to pay out uh, was about 8.2%. So you're bringing in 8.2% every month uh, in excess spread. Um, and then you've got a reserve account, which in this deal, I think was 6.5 million or about one and a quarter percent of the overall deal uh, that sits in an escrow account, earns interest and is there as a reserve, thus the name. And then that subordination. So that A through E that I talked about, the A tranche gets paid first. Uh, they all get paid interest, but the A tranche only gets paid principal, uh, principal and interest, but it's the only tranche that gets that. And then once A pays off, then B gets a principal and, and it's a waterfall. So the income and principal comes down the waterfall. Losses flow up. So losses will hit E first and then they'll hit D. So E becomes the riskier uh, deal here, but you've got collateral, you've got recovery value. And that's one of the things that was a benefit um, in you know early in the pandemic and through again, that first year and a half or so when used car prices were really moving higher, the recovery that you could get if you had to repossess a car was higher than what you originally expected. So if I repossessed a car and I originally expect that it's worth $5,000, but because the used car market was so, so hot, I can get $7,500 for it. And I'm getting a little bit more than I was expecting. And so that's another area that, that can help uh, those deals. It's not something that we would normally expect, but that was kind of a, an added benefit of what we saw within the used car market. So that kind of breaks down what, the security looks like, where you can find as an investor opportunities by the A tranche, the B tranche, the C, depending on where your risk tolerance is. Um, but then we look at that. And so that was, again, that was 2019 when the deal came to the market. So if I look at it now uh, and look at company A 2019-4, what I see is that the all the A tranches, so the fixed, the floating, those have all paid off. The B tranche has paid off. The C tranche, which Last month had about 14 million remaining on it. You know, we just got the what are called remittance reports. We got that today or yesterday. Uh, there's about 8 million left on that. So it saw 6 million in paydowns just in this month, in the month of November. And so that continues to pay down and they're way ahead of their maturity schedule. You know, the, the A and the B were, I think, expected to mature in, in 24. Um, the C tranche, based on the way it's going, should pay off in maybe the first or second month of 2023, the final maturity on that was 2025. So you're getting your money a little bit sooner. But these bonds are trading, you know, anywhere from, in the C tranche example, 99 cents on the dollar. Um, the D and the E are trading in the mid to low 90s. So, you know, maybe picking up a little headline risk impact, but they continue to perform well. Um, you know, when the, when the pre-sale report came out this deal, there was expectations for, uh, or, or theoretically 21% losses. Uh, right now you're looking at about, I think 10%, I could be off on my numbers, but I think you're looking about 10% losses. So performing twice as well as, as one would expect. And so that's how you can get that benefit of securitization. And you don't necessarily have to worry about that headline risk because it is wholly separate from company A. So company A 2019 or 2020 or 2021, or even the new issues of 2022, you don't have to worry about it as much. You know, one area that you do have to think about is that if company A, let's say goes bankrupt, um, you make sure when you look at these deals, there's a, there's a service provider that is not 
company A, um, so we'll call it company Y, uh, their job is to take my payment every month, apply it to my loan, pool everything together to basically run all the logistics associated with the deal. And what you want to make sure is that you've got a backup provider. So you can get a, a service provider that's very experienced, very big in the business, but you can always have that backup provider in case something happens to your, your provider, uh, if that makes sense. So your service provider goes belly up, you've got a backup. Um, very, very infrequent that, that that happens, but it's always good to have that there because that's, you know, that's the moving parts that you want to make sure work. Uh, and so that's, that's a key as well. But, you know, the idea is to, to show, uh, and the idea around the, the piece that I put together was to show you've got equity, you've got fixed income, you've got the debt, and then you've got securitized. And though they all have the same name, they are very different when it comes to risk to the parent company. I think it was a really great case study, Doug, and, and certainly interesting. And um, of course, hindsight's always twenty twenty, so it's certainly easy to take some of these uh, examples and, and do a full analysis on them. But I also think that that the example really helps, as you just mentioned, helps highlight that risk reward um, balance and that risk reward potential that we can see in securitized debt. Yeah, yeah, it's it's uh, and it's it's the ability to. Or, or the opportunity to pick and choose where you want to be. If I'm a little bit more risky, I'm looking at some of the lower tranches. If I'm more conservative or if I've got a shorter time frame, I'm looking at maybe that A or that B because they're going to pay off first. So it really gives you flexibility uh, in a somewhat inefficient market as well. Interesting. Well, before we close, Doug, I would be remiss if I didn't ask you to share some thoughts about fixed income markets as we head into the new year. Um, I know... You don't have a crystal ball and nobody has a crystal ball in terms of what's going to happen. But um, I think it's pretty safe to say that inflation is going to continue to be a big focus for investors going forward, where those rates head. Um, but what else should fixed income investors be thinking about and considering as we head into 2023? Well, we hope that 2023 is better than 2022. And that's not really setting the bar very high. I mean, 2022 was... Uh, is was the worst calendar year for performance and fixed income that we've ever seen. Um, and, you know, when you take rates and you raise them as much as they have, as quickly as they have, that's going to happen. So if expectations are, and I'll, I'll take the Fed line, uh, you know, that they're going to maybe raise another 75 basis points and then hold steady, because I do think that is what they're going to do. Uh, data dependent, if inflation ramps up again, uh, they're going to maybe accelerate. If, if inflation cools off even faster, they'll probably slow down. But if we assume that we're going to kind of be status quo for a little while, so let's assume the Fed's going to go another 75 basis points within the first couple months of 2023. Uh, what does that mean for fixed income? It means that we're maybe at the in the seventh or eighth inning of this tightening cycle. Uh, so you know we look at our fixed income offerings and we look at the market, and for the first time in a very long time, Core looks pretty good. Um, you know, you're looking, and I'm talking core in general. Uh, you're looking at uh, duration of let's call it five and a half, six years. If you're looking at the index, you're yielding maybe six percent. Those are levels we haven't seen in a very long time. And so I, I think that as the market, which is sitting on a ton of cash, is looking to put money to work, they're going to be looking at things that maybe aren't going to blow up like we saw in 2023. So getting over your skis, whether it's your core manager adding in high yield and, and really, really getting aggressive 
uh, or adding long duration maybe at the wrong time. Uh, I think that we should, should uh, see positive returns in 2023, which, which would be really nice um, for fixed income. I'm not going to, not going to guesstimate on equities at all. Um, because if we stabilize here, uh, then we've got some nice carry in, in these portfolios. And in these portfolios, I mean, fixed income, um, you know, in treasuries, you know, a 10 year treasury, you're getting three and a half, maybe 4% at some point next year. Um, on the shorter end, you're getting that. So, you know, it's, it's going to depend on, as you mentioned, inflation, it's going to depend on how un, uh, unemployment tracks um, and really what the economy is going to look like. And, you know, one big piece that we have no idea is China. You know, as they're reopening, COVID is spreading like wildfire because they didn't get vaccinated or they didn't use the most efficient vaccines. So while they open up and people are excited about that, that could really be detrimental to them. Uh, and so that could slow things down. And then you've got Ukraine and Russia and who knows how that ends. But I think for fixed income, uh, there is a light at the end of the tunnel of at the end of a very difficult year. Uh, I don't think that light is a train. Uh, some people may think that, but I think we're in a better position without a doubt. We've got some carry, whether it's in short, whether it's in core, to weather, um, you know, some rate volatility, which I would expect we would see. But, you know, I think, again, we're getting towards the end of the Fed's moves. We've kind of adjusted to and digested QT and their reduction of the balance sheet. Um, but, you know, if they decide to come out and say, hey, we're going to start selling aggressively, that's a different story. But if they just continue to let things wind down as they have, uh, I think fixed income is, is going to be in favor and you should see some, some attractive returns. I'm not going to say, you know, earth shattering returns that maybe you should expect off such a disastrous year, but I, I do think we're going to see some pretty compelling returns and some opportunities as well. Well, Doug, here's hoping and uh, we look forward to talking to you again. I just want to thank you again for coming on the final podcast of 2022. Uh, I always enjoy our conversations and we look forward to picking these back up in the new year. It is my honor to be your final guest of 2022. And I, I appreciate these immensely. So uh, yeah, let's get to it in, in 2023. And hopefully we see a, a much better uh, year across the financial markets. That's great. And to our audience, thank you so much for listening. We appreciate your interest and your time and we wish you all the best this holiday season.